0: There's the element of trust. If, if I've got a machine telling me to do something, telling me to act on something, telling me something is happening, how do I trust it, how do I believe it? The advantage of language as the mechanism here is is for communicating is that you can explain why.
1: Welcome to How AI Happens, a podcast where experts explain their work at the cutting edge of artificial intelligence. You'll hear from AI researchers, data scientists, and machine learning engineers as they get technical about the most exciting developments in their field and the challenges they're facing along the way. I'm your host, Rob Stevenson, and we're about to learn how AI happens. Today on how AI happens, we're jumping back into natural language generation. There's a growing belief that nailing NLG and NLP will unlock mass adoption of AI technologies, and it's not hard to see why. When people can interact with machines as well as, or perhaps even better than, they interact with humans, it will result in trust, better technology, and, crucially, democratized access to the kind of insight that historically needed at the very least computer literacy, and often much more advanced coding chops. Here to explain some of the use cases, opportunity, and hurdles of bringing advanced NLG to market is the chief technology officer over at ARIA, Neil Burnett.
0: I did my undergraduate in computing, first of all, with nothing related to AI, nothing related to language technologies, just just a very general computing degree. And when I was looking for my next step, I kind of felt like I wasn't fully ready for industry. I wasn't really really clear on what I wanted to do. So I picked up the opportunity to do a a master's post-grad at the University of Aberdeen. Which is actually where I met some of the people that are, that are founders in the company now, started working in this field of NLG natural language generation. So I graduated from there, forgot all about it for a few years while I went and worked for a, for a company. And and what I, what I started doing was actually building a social media site from ground up, like a Java based application that was a social media site, which is kind of before we had any of these uh, sort of frameworks for, for, for doing that. You get something off the shelf these days or extend something. Kind of evolved there through, through that company where I was developer to begin with, as I say. Then it became sort of like a manager, manager of a very, very small team. Um, and we were doing some interesting things, but what we found was that competitors who had more money than us that were, were, were better back than us were able to replicate all of our key functionality and just kind of, kind of wiped us out. So I was looking for an opportunity, something to move on to, something that could be at for a long time, something that could grow in. And most of all, really interesting tech and I saw the name of Professor Rahad Reiter, who, who actually oversaw my master's project, and he was advertising for, uh, for to come work at his company called data Detect. text So I called him up and, and said, oh, it'd be good to, good to talk about this. Did an interview took about three months, I think, to get back to me. So they must have gone through plenty of other candidates rejecting them first before they came back to me. <laughs> um, but I, they brought me in and I was, I was a, a general purpose, fairly junior developer. I was doing that for a few years. Worked on a couple of the initial applications we had as, as the company was called Data to Text. It evolved, was, was acquired by an organization called ARIA. And, and for me, it was just a case of moving up in the development ranks to sort of leading teams and Covering as many projects as we possibly could, I um, was working closely with the the CTO at that time of the company called uh, Dr. Robert Dale. Uh, he took me to Australia for six months to open an office there. Um, and over the time that we were kind of working together, he was there was enough drinks and, and evening socials and things for me to rant to him about everything that I thought we 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 should be doing differently. And came back to the UK and was appointed as the head of development. I did that for a couple of years, and and through various changes and, and progressions, moved up to CTO, and been doing that for for several years now, actually, and and kind of over that time we've grown from fifty people to around about two hundred, and you know day to day I kind of focus a bit more on the core technology, and how how it kind of works in the nuts and bolts, and we've got other very capable people who are overseeing other detailed aspects for other sort of products as well.
1: I have to say, I've definitely towards the end of a happy hour, told my boss what I really thought about a company and it never r- resulted in me getting promoted. So <laughs> you must have, uh, you must have, uh, uh, approached that with a tad more diplomacy and tact than me. Um, but this is also an interesting part of your journey, uh, how you've kind of, you know, y- as you, you said, junior developer, now you are kind of in the C level. I really want to get into the technology, but I am curious just about your, your career growth because for folks out there who are working in AI, they are going to be forced with this decision to continue as an individual contributor working and developing these tools or to grow into leading teams, managing teams, et cetera. So how did you kind of one chart that growth and like succeeding, being able to, to have this chief technology officer position? And two, how did you think about whether that was the
0: role you really wanted? It's, it's sort of a natural progression to pick up more and more responsibility. That's a path for a lot of people who just want to move up through the ranks And become more and more senior because with that goes recognition, control and salary. But, you know, it's not for everybody. It's for, there's often just getting more deeply involved in the technology. And, and, you know, we need people like that in the organization. It's essential to have people who just, just really want to know absolutely everything about technology and get incredibly deep into it. For, for me, it's, it's more than just the technology, though that's kind of a key aspect to it. The three items that you normally focus on are, are, would be around people, process and technology. And on the people side, I think, you know, get a lot of thoughts there about management or working with people and, and the idea that a manager can't really define the boundaries of, of the capabilities of the team, right? A manager or somebody who's a leader of the team needs to kind of appreciate that other perspectives are required and they won't always fit with your own. And, and in the same way that a CTO can't set the bounds of the technology, right? So for for me, my journey has been appreciating through the people I've worked with who've all been capable, intelligent, articulate people, and and just being noticed for that, right, being noticed for not being the one who's fighting to be the most seen, that appreciates that the strength of the organisation is the strength of the team, and enjoying working with people, right, enjoying working with people, enjoying evolving processes, as well as just enjoying working with technology, staying relevant in the field, understanding it to some degree of depth. So, so sort of covering all of those things, it's, it's been better for me to be, you know, moving up through management levels rather than just focusing on the technology.
1: Well, having said that, let's focus on the technology, shall we? I guess first, can you share a little bit about the company and what the technology is and the use cases?
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so in the simplest form, ARIA's technology is about turning data into text. But the text is really to allow communication that can be well understood by, by readers, by, by people that are being communicated with, right? Beyond just generating text for text's sake, right? We allow people to gain insights on their data, to, to communicate with the data, to understand the insights through clear language and explanation. You know, it brings benefits to organizations who use that technology in the form of cost-saving, time-saving, as well as through consistent understanding of critical insights, critical concepts, and, and that consistency that machine-based approach can, can can bring. As ARIA, we've worked on a fairly broad set of use cases and a broad, broad set of verticals. Um, in the early days, we worked on weather, weather reporting, where we worked with an organization who had so much data that they couldn't manually generate enough weather forecasts. So a machine can do that in a very consistent way, that showers always means the same thing that uh, a chilly day means the same thing, that's weather in Scotland where I'm based, right? Um, We worked in in oil and gas where we were dealing with very very large data sets and too much data for a human to process properly, so they were making decisions without knowing the full information and we could support decision making, that's a key aspect. You can interact with our technology in terms of generating reports and automating reports, but you can also interact with our technology in the form of of Q&A. you can ask your question in a very natural human form and get a natural response back and revolving our technology into the the style of being able to create reports from from Q&A as well as building up from, from sections.
1: There's this belief that more data is always better and perhaps with infinite processing resources, infinite computational resources, annotating resources, that's the case, but who has those resources? And so it strikes me that an important process here is you you mentioned you had quickly had more data than any human could hope to hope to process. This need to prioritize and then develop a narrative from that prioritized data. Is that the case? and and if so, how do you go from you know honing in on only the relevant data
0: and then turning that into a, a meaningful story to the user? You might think that defining a set of rules across, across massive sets of data might be very difficult, very laborious and, and often end up missing edge cases. But that's kind of that, that rules based approach is kind of required for quality and then being able to sort of introduce pieces of technology that bring more machine based approaches to, to kind of augment, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of buzz around end to end natural language technologies and, and rightly so because it's fascinating. It's a developing field. And when you're left with massive sets of data, just seeing what the machine can do um and, and have a bit of a look at it and see what it can generate is you know, is a fascinating thing to do. But if you want to derive meaningful insight, then you cannot just let the machine go and, and, and find things out for you and just come back with what it is, because it it's often inaccurate, um and it's often not quite missing the right important cases. So so our approach as is is a combination of rules-based approach with augmentations, right? But you always need that consistency of having a rules-based approach in there to ensure quality and prevent hallucination. We use that word, hallucination. We, we build these rules and we work with subject matter experts to refine and define those rules, um, to make sure that we're finding the right insights, that we're prioritising the right insights. Um, but then we're augmenting that with... Edits and suggestions that can be machine-generated, that, that might not find their way into the final report. They're just sort of helping the the author build a case. You know? Could you give an example of one of those one of those edits? So we can fix the language. That's sort of one of those sorts of edits. Right? We're automatically fixing the language afterwards. If if the author slightly gets it a little bit wrong, we can make those make those changes for them sort of on the fly. But we can also flag up facts that haven't been seen before, we can suggest alternate ways of expressing a point to make it more salient or more in keeping with the domain you're working within. Like, like a very generic description of a trend is good, but when you're talking within the finance domain, the, the words and the phrases that you use are important in conveying the meaning. So being able to look across pre-written reports, pre-written narratives, Created by your organization, we can look and say, "Well, this, these words are maybe a little bit better in this sort of context." Can you explain
1: hallucination for me? I've never heard that term
0: before. Yeah, hallucination. It's not. It's not. It's not just what happens when you sit down with your CTO and have a few drinks and imagine things are coming at (laughs) you. When you When you take
1: your CTO to Lollapalooza, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) No, but 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 you know, quite literally, seeing things that aren't there. But but from the machine perspective. It's a term that's coming up in the field quite a lot. It's being, it's starting to be recognized as a, and it's a great term, right? Like the idea of hallucinating and seeing something that isn't there. Mm-hmm. I've been trying some of the more end to end approaches for, for language generation and, and language processing, even things like summarizing. So, so I took, took a, a text that Aria generated, a report that Aria generated, probably only a couple of paragraphs, a sales report talking about, um the key countries that were driving sales and the key regions that were driving sales pretty pretty simple report in the grand scheme of things uh, the summarization the idea was could we could we compress those two paragraphs to the most salient points a couple of sentences and and what the machine did was it it started talking about sales in new zealand um, and new zealand wasn't in the original text and because the n t n doesn't even uh, look at the data whatsoever. It was it, it was basically inventing New Zealand. It knew New Zealand was a country, knew we were talking about countries, but it was stating as a fact that sales were increasing in New Zealand when sales are not even performed in New Zealand. We're not, not selling anything in New Zealand, right? So that, that's just a complete hallucination. It's just it's coming up with a fact and and speaking as if it's as if it's fact when it's not really. It's it's just something that's there, right? How does that happen?
1: How, how do those cheeky Kiwis make their way into that report?
0: It's interesting, isn't it? It must, be, it's, it must just be the frequency of which certain countries are put together. Like maybe our, maybe our report was talking about Australia um, or had Australia in there as a key driver of sales. And then they know that New Zealand goes along with Australia frequently and put those, put those together. Inter- it's, it's a really interesting thing because you, you, you only ever see the result. You don't sort of see right. the, see what's going on behind the scenes. You just kind of have to guess, but, you know, educated guess.
1: <laughs> are, are there any, like, attention mechanisms in place or, or ways to sort of figure out how uh, hallucination might occur? I'm, I'm curious, like, how you would go about mitigating them uh, once you had experienced it.
0: It's difficult. If, the, if if it's sort of this black box of text in, text out, and, and a whole load of um, machine learning in the middle, it can be very difficult to control um, I guess you would need to put some checks and balances on the output, which would mean a bit more NLP to, to kind of parse it. I mean, it's really about preventing these hallucinations through control, restricting the insights to, to be true with the data, which is what ARIA is really doing, right? And that's why the rules-based approach is, is required. Um, and we find, you know, we've spoken to people as we've been recruiting, we've been, been interviewing people who have worked for very large organizations working in the field and, they're finding the same thing, right? They're having to implement um, a rules-based approach even on sort of some of these commercial devices that that everybody has in their living room, right? It's just the the way things are with the the state of the tech at the moment.
1: The state of the tech at the moment is another thing I wanted to to kind of speak with you about just because there are all these applications like you said for, you're having luck in fintech. Uh, There's ways that we engage with it as consumers every day without even realizing it. What are some of the, the barriers to adoption, would you say? What is sort of holding language technologies back from being more widespread? Um, is, it a, is it a state of just consumer understanding? Is it a state of you know, the, where the, the technology is and where the products are?
0: Yeah, I think this is a really good question, actually, because we've been on a bit of a journey as a company. And, and people had, you know, the joke is they could never spell NLG in the early days um, let alone know, know what it did. But the the world's become a lot more educated at this point and there's there's a fairly good understanding of what it is. But there's still it's still kind of on the upward upward curve, right, of adoption. Um, because people are I've got various different reasons for not not trusting it, not wanting to work with it. I think in our experience there's you know, there's the element of trust. If if I've got a machine telling me to do something, telling me to act on something, telling me something is happening, how do I no, it's a fact, how do I trust it? How do I believe it? And you know, the the advantage of language is the as the mechanism here is is for communicating is that you can explain why, you can explain your justification. Um, you know, this this is happening because of this, or we've seen this in the data, which backs up our point. Um, and we've looked at ways of augmenting the text with with you know click and go to a graph and things like that to sort of support our point. But you can you can be persuasive and you can you can tell people. Um, but people really need to sort of adopt that first use case to really see that, see the trust. Um, they really want to be able to see how the internals of the system works, which you know you can do with our technology, and then have that trust that, that the rules that are in place are going to give you the right results. One, one of the things that, that we see people commenting a lot is they want to use their own voice. Um, they want to use their own company's voice and their own company's way of saying things. They want to be able to edit what's going on in the technology. They want to be able to edit the the insights that are being generated, the way they're expressed. And you know, that one is totally alleviated by better products. Um, I mean, allowing users to be able to control, users of different skill levels to be able to control, because I'm a developer, I've been doing it for 10 years, I can build an NLG system, but this company that's just picked up our te- technology loves that what we can do out of the box, but wants to make modifications to the way things are phrased, or the order in which things are reported upon, the way things are drilled down. We need to provide them with with tooling and better products to, to have it work and speak the way they want it to work. And the naturalness and the persuasiveness of language is is important for that. Language is kind of what people are most comfortable with, and it's how they communicate with each other. I mean, sure, there's body language and things too, um, but if if you can get language right, there's almost this... It almost feels like you're, you're connecting at the point of being told something. You're building trust because you're communicating with language. If I, if I view a graph, then it leaves to my own interpretation to some extent. So that's, it's, it's fine, right? I can see a graph. I can take my picture away from it. I can tell my story, but going that extra mile with language technologies of being able to tell people in detail, they want that extra level of, of robustness of, tr- of, of trust in it, you know? The one, one, yeah. one, one, other, um, one other thing that we we found it was a, an interesting one. We came up with a, we had we had an Alexa skill and it allowed you to, you know, I mentioned we could do Q and A with the data with the, with our technology. So we had the voice interface and we we had a customer, and we said, you know, here's an Alexa, put it on your desk table, and then when you go into meetings, you can start talking to it and it can back back you up, in a in a meeting, in a sales meeting or in a in a board meeting. And the, the feedback was that we don't want to put an Alex on the desk in the meeting room because anybody can walk into our unsecured meeting rooms and find out facts they didn't want to know. So there's always, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's always something that, that can turn up. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's, I, I think, you know, if we as commercial organizations can be listening to what the world is telling us and how they want to, how they'll feel more comfortable adopting, how they'll be able to handle more use cases and, and listen to that and create better products. That are gonna address those concerns, then then you know that's that's when this technology is gonna become much more ubiquitous.
1: Especially with language, the way people speak, we understand innately these rules. One one example is why can you have a great green hill and not a green great hill, right? It's like it's just an order of words. It doesn't mean anything, but it does. Like if I said, "Oh, that's a green great hill behind you," you'd be like, "Rob talks weird." <laughs> um, and so there there's this need with language to, and it ties in with what you were saying about trust to meet people where they are with how they communicate and how they expect to be communicated with. Think of the way one speaks to a Siri or an Alexa versus how you search in Google, right? Like when I'm searching in Google, I don't type, can you please show me the directions to this gas station, right? I just go gas station near me, right? Right. But like if I was going to speak to a virtual assistant or sorry, of an AI assistant, I would. I would. I would pose it as an actual human question. And so this level of comfortability feels to me, as you were saying, one of the last pieces where people can speak and engage with this technology the way they engage with everything else in their life. And then it doesn't become interruptive. Then it just becomes natural
0: language, right? Absolutely. I make sure my kids say please and thank you to the Google Assistant that's in, in the living room as they're asking for music and things to dance around to. to. To use language is human, right? We're used to interacting with each other in a certain way. When we're interacting with technology in a certain way, we also then expect it to interrupt back to us in a certain way. And it's not, it's not bullet points and it's not factlets that float around in a dashboard detached from, from the rest of, of the information. It's well-backed up, articulate arguments or, or points well made in good flowing language that just allows you to feel in your flow right feel in your flow that you're communicating and communicating with in a way that just works for the way the human mind has evolved to work to be interacting with language
1: yes and it's, it's just it's this interesting flippening sort of where originally computers just having any sort of output was groundbreaking and then you had to know how to humans had to know how to speak to computers, right? You had to know a coding language or you had to know Boolean search or you had to know some advanced way to interact with this machine. Uh, but the idea is now we want machines to learn how to interact with us, right? So is, how much of that has been part of generating the technology of what is the gap between how machines process information versus how humans process information and finding the meeting point?
0: It comes down to to sort of a methodology or a process you know you know at the, the nuts and bolts level in the system it comes down to that because you you listen and you understand and then you analyze and and humans do that very very quickly not on large sets of data but on past experience um but then you're sort of determining what you are going what what your opinion is or what you what you're going to say and then you organize it into the best way of communicating and then you 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 speak it out articulately and you know the technology is to is to replicate each of those levels in a way that is, is not as vague and, and susceptible to headaches and, and tiredness like humans are. It's interesting because you have to think about the way humans process information and articulate their point their point and replicate that in technology because that's all those steps that you're performing without even necessarily knowing it are the steps that have to be in the technology too to reach those, those to make those points articulately. Yes, absolutely.
1: Well, Neil, we are creeping up on optimal podcast length here. Before I let you go, I'm going to put it on you to kind of tie a nice bow on this episode. I'm curious when you think about just the field writ large, whether it's natural language processing or any sort of application of this technology, what truly excites you? What is kind of an inspiring outlet for this tech that uh, just makes you excited to to be a part of the industry?
0: There's, um, so, so I'll give you an answer one about what interests me in in sort of the the language field and then I'll give you another one about just my own pet interests because the so within language technology field I mean I I, I was really interested by some of the some of the work we started doing in sports um, just because it feels like something that has mass adoption and it has something that is is very achievable with technology to be reporting on summaries and key facts and highly personalized interaction for people you know in a one-to-one between you and what's going on in your team but you know overall for technology i really feel like somebody and and i'm sure it's going to be us is going to crack it so that most cases that you would want to interact with a computer in a data-based way in a way based on data is that Somebody's going to crack it and handle most of those, most of those cases. It'll be in a brain. It'll be in, a, in an insight engine that people can, can use and interact with. And so, so our ambitions and the ambitions of the field are to handle more and more of, of human interactions with computer and to make language get to the point that people are beyond dashboards and people are beyond looking at pictures and they're just working with, with, with language. So it's, it's kind of what we exist to do. But it's, it's just a really interesting thing in the field that, that we could change the way people interact with computers, people interact with technology, people interact with data. And, and then that all said, you know, you mentioned self-driving cars. I was, I was playing with the AWS Deep Racer and, uh, I don't want Formula One or NASCAR to become fully autonomous because you need those humans in there. But just the idea that you can figure out or AI can figure out the fastest way around a track just like it's it's it was an interesting thing that they did to put that out there as a way of, of helping people understand and see how AI can can work
1: i'm just now realizing we're going to have a moment with ai and formula 1 or nascar that we had with like gary kasparov and d blue right like there'll, there'll be a point where machines are so good at driving that they won't be allowed to compete because it's just not interesting chess computers are better than the best chess player like every single time you know uh mm. but so then it's just okay we admit that that like computers are better but the, the competitions we still watch are our people it'll be the same right like a formula one auto, a self-driven car will smoke everybody and then like okay congrats you guys did it but no this is a this is a humans game thank you very
0: much <laughs> and it won't, it won't be interesting anymore and people would stop watching exactly it's they're already trying to take all those, all the little things that help the human out of the mix, right? How AI Happens is brought
1: to you by Sama. Sama provides accurate data for ambitious AI. Specializing in image, video, and sensor data annotation and validation for machine learning algorithms in industries such as transportation, retail, e-commerce, media, medtech, robotics, and agriculture. For more information, head to sama.com.